That's what my kids call a lot of this stuff. Daddy, did you make lots of words about that? <laughs> <laughs> That's what I do for a job, honey. Uh, yeah. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. You're fantastic at coding, but do you have an action plan to take it to the next level? The upcoming book, Next Level Freelance, will help you optimize your freelance business for happiness. The book is packed with actionable steps to make more money, case studies, tips to find more clients, and exercises for you to establish your desired lifestyle. Extras include nine interviews with freelancers who make great money while enjoying great work-life balance, videos on strategies to find quality subcontractors, and videos on making more free time by outsourcing your daily tasks. Check it out today, nextlevelfreelance.com. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 71 of The Freelancer Show. This week on our panel, we have Jim Gay. Hello. Reuben Lerner. Hi, everyone. Ash Dryden. Hi there. Eric Davis. Hey. And I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. And uh, this week, we're going to be talking about screencasting and making videos and that kind of stuff. I'm a little curious. I know, I know, Eric, you've done some screencasts and some video stuff. Have, have any of the rest of you done much? I actually uh, do it for end user training, um, especially when I'm building something that people are going to have to go in and like put content in. Uh, a lot of times I will do uh, videos for them and then uh, transcribe them. So that's basically the documentation for them. That makes sense. Yeah, I'll do the same thing, um, but I'll use it for anybody, either like a project manager giving them a high level overview of something or you know, a user showing them how to use something or a developer, like, here's how I attack this bit of code or something like that. Yeah. It, so, some of the folks on the show will know that I did teach me to code for about two years and I did, I did a whole bunch of screencasts for that. I, I do some screencasting for my clients, but not really a whole lot. Most of the time they are technical enough to understand it. And if they aren't, then a lot of times I'll just send them a picture with a big arrow on it. You know, click here to get to the feature. Because if they're fairly involved, that's all you have to say. You can point out what's new, and then they can go and do it from there. What about you, Eric? Yeah, I mean, I've done stuff for clients. Um, the best, there's two way, two ways that I do it that works the best, i found, is um, if there's a bug, especially if it's like a UI or interaction bug, I'll record it, because sometimes you can't see like how JavaScript toggles or stuff flashes on the screen. The second way is to kind of like, hey, you know, if it's like a rough spec, like I'll document and or I'll, I'll write it in a screencast like hey this is what i'm thinking of how it would work you know you click here you go here you go here so kind of like a workflow um and i do it especially on prototypes to kind of work through how it would work if it's not ready to go like on a staging environment or like i said if it's an actual prototype um i also use screencasts and kind of i don't know what you call them like recorded presentation type things for marketing stuff and that seems to work pretty good especially uh when you can put stuff on youtube and have it public well i guess i've done that too for my courses so I've done plenty of screen recording, usually with the slide deck or something. Yeah, I mean, is that what you call it, like screen recording? Uh, I don't know. I don't know if it's technically a screencast if you're just flipping through slides, but it's handy. Yeah. And then I, I've also done demo videos for my courses as well. So what software do you guys use? Depends what I'm doing. If I'm doing like a presentation, I typically just use ScreenFlow on the Mac we have. Um, that's basically where I edit stuff because Linux video editors just aren't that good. But I, I typically edit in ScreenFlow. But if I'm recording like actual code or stuff like that, I can't remember where I got the script from, but it basically uses like FFmpeg and records what your Linux um, windowing system, what it's actually displaying. So it's basically like recording your screen, but it's a very, very high quality and I actually do that to record if my editor, if I'm, you know, debugging or find a bug, and then I throw it on the Mac through our network and actually, you know, render it out into something that a client can see. Um, and that's pretty much it. I mean, I'll either host it on S3 um, or put it on YouTube, depending on, you know, if it's going to be public or like a private thing. So, Eric, I'm, I'm curious, the little bit of screencasting that I've done or putting them together, I've just used ScreenFlow on my Mac. So what's the advantage of uh, recording your Linux box over just using ScreenFlow? I'll, I'll, basically, my Linux system is my main system. So if I'm doing any kind of programming, like showing how Emacs works or whatever, if I did it on the Mac, I'd be slower because the keyboards are different and I'd have to basically remote into my main system in order to do my work. So it's easier just to record the audio video on my laptop 
in the environment where everything's set up locally and then just transfer that file and do the editing on the Mac. But if it's, like I said, like a presentation where I'm just in a browser clicking through, I can just do it on the Mac because it doesn't need anything. Yeah, I use uh, Jing, um, which is like uh, really easy and very pared down, uh, mostly because... Mostly because a lot of the videos that I do are pretty short. They're generally under five minutes um, because most people, when they're referring back to the documentation, they just want the one specific action that they're looking to do. They're not necessarily looking for 25 minutes of how to do everything. So I do short videos, and Jing is pretty great for that. Yeah, I have to say uh, Jing is real nice, and I've used it before. The nice thing about Jing, too, is that it's cross-platform. It'll run on Windows or Mac. And, and yeah, you just do a one or two minute screen capture and then it, it actually hosts the video for you and everything else. So it's really, really handy way to go. And I think Jing is made by the same company that makes Camtasia, which is a really great software for Windows screencasts. Back when I um, worked at a company, we were doing some of that. And I think it's a bit more powerful than ScreenFlow, but ScreenFlow is Mac only. But I think Jing is really great for entry level stuff. And then when you want to get into heavier editing, like Camtasia is like basically the next step up. I believe both of them let you either upload it automatically or do some kind of hosting with their hosted stuff. So you can record something in Jing, send it to some web accessible place, and then send the link over to a client right away. Mm -hmm. I like Jing too, uh, because it's easy for uh, clients to understand. So a lot of times if they are having a hard time putting into words a bug that they're finding and you need to actually be able to see the entire thing so screenshots won't work. I've actually got them to record basically what they're doing through Jing. Yeah, it it works really well for that. I've used Camtasia and ScreenFlow. Camtasia does seem to be a little bit more fully featured, but uh, the thing I like about uh, ScreenFlow is that it's just a very simple interface. It seems like it's much more that way than Camtasia. And so I started out on Camtasia and I moved over to ScreenFlow and I haven't looked back. I really, really like it. Yeah, with video editing, it's there's definitely tiers. I mean, you got Jing where it's very basic and you got like ScreenFlow and then Camtasia and like Final Cut Pro. And I mean, it depends on how high up you want to go. And I've always, I, I learned it this way and this is how I've always done it is just make it, try to do it in one cut, try to make it very simple and do minimal editing because the editing is where you suck all the time on it. I've seen figures anywhere from four to 10 times the length of the screencast to do editing on it. And, you know, if you can just do it in one cut and then just do a, you know, trim the beginning and end and upload it and be done with it, that's the best thing to do. Yeah, I've uh, I've done a lot with Jing. Um, I also use one called Screeny. Uh, it's for, I think it's for Mac only. And it's good. Like, I, I haven't ever really used uh, screencasting for, like, production quality. I'm selling this video stuff so i don't really have an opinion i'm just like quickly recording things to show somebody how to do it but also i think the built-in quick quick time player can record your screen as well so you don't even really have to go looking if you've got quick time installed you can just try using that you just gotta be really careful especially with quick time unless you're on a mac it's really easy to upload stuff that people can't watch even if you have quick time on windows it's you know video codecs video containers all that stuff i've even on Linux where I install every driver you can find, like you're still going to have these videos where the audio won't play or the audio will be choppy or the video won't play or just random stuff. And I, it's like this on Windows too. Like basically if you record and upload using a Mac, like that's something you're going to have to test, especially if you have like a VM or something. It's the best thing to do. Yeah, I, I have to say I have um, Adobe Premiere Pro, which is their uh, Final Cut equivalent. They're really kind of power tools. They, they have a million options on them, and I found them somewhat difficult to use. I mean, I, I need more training before I really am comfortable uh, getting into them. But uh, they both come with features um, either, I think it's After Effects for Adobe and Motion for Final Cut, and then you can do all the, the effects and things like that that you want to do with your other stuff. Is there, is there any other software for recording that we want to talk about before we get into things like effects and stuff like that? Yeah, I haven't used this myself, but I've heard about it. Um, it's Screener, um, S-C-R-E-N-R. There's no E in it. Um, it's supposed to be like a web-based one where somehow, I don't know if it's using Flash or something, but somehow it re- you can go there, start recording, and record your screen all through the browser. You don't have to use like desktop software. Um, I've heard some people use that for clients because, you know, clients obviously aren't going to have like screen flow around to record what they're seeing. So 
they send people there and it's, you know, typically like a couple minutes, maybe even less than a minute just to have their client record a screencast and it has someone to fix or something. So I, I haven't used it, but I've heard some good stuff about it. Nice. When, when you guys say that one program is better than another, so what sorts of features do they have that make them better or make them easier? Is it just the UI or their actual features that you use? I'm telling you, I mean, like, I, I use ScreenFlow and <laughs> I feel overwhelmed by the features that they have there because the little that I need to do is just a, a, the tip of the iceberg of what it offers. Yeah, that's that's one of the things that's kept me from buying anything bigger. Like, I've thought about getting other software um, and I look at what they do and I'm just like, you know what? I just need to record a simple screencast. And even though I may want to grow into other things and do um, like commercial uh, screencasts, without really getting into my flow, something like Jing is perfect. You just turn it on and say, all right, I'm going to record this area of the screen, go. And that's good enough. Yeah, what I look for, the big thing for me is export formats. It has to build export to various different formats, sizes, you know, quality levels, because that's, you know, that's going to make or break it, depending on what you're doing. Luckily, if you put it up to YouTube, they can pretty much take almost anything these days. Um, the second thing, and this is kind of more for my marketing type stuff, is... I want to be able to t- record a video or have a video file, but then add on kind of a, my standard beginning and then like a standard ending. So like I'll, I have like a couple videos where it's like, hi, I'm Eric Davis. I work at LittleStream Software. I do X, Y, Z. And then I get into the content and at the end. It's like, if you'd like to know more details, you know, visit my website, you know, that sort of idea. Um, and that's great because it lets me have the consistent beginning and end without having to re-record it each time. And so having software that's you like multi-track where you can have that, and then kind of fade in and fade out to, you know, the different stages. Like that's basically the most advanced feature I use. Yeah. The only problem I've ever seen with an approach like that, where you pre-record the introduction and the uh, outro or whatever you want to call it, um, is that sometimes the, the sound quality isn't the same. And so you listen to it and they sound a little bit more muffled or garbled. And then the quality on the actual recording is really clean. And then the ending is is not as clean anymore. Yeah. Yeah, that's actually another one I use. Is there's If you have, I think ScreenFlow has like one where it just automatically cuts out background noise at a certain level and then kind of boosts stuff around. It's like, you know, the automatic make this sound better checkbox. Like that's been really good for me versus like the more advanced playing with levels and mixers and all that. And it's also, you know, like I said, I like to do rough cuts where if I make a, if I stutter, make a mistake, go, um, I, I'm, you know, like that, I leave it in there. I don't really care about cutting it all out. Yeah, I tend to use the same equipment for all of my stuff. And so both podcasts and screencasts, I record it all through my mixer into my digital audio recorder. And uh, it requ- it records it in high-quality WAV format. And then I actually uh, pull the WAV file onto my hard drive and put it into ScreenFlow. And then I just line them up because I've recorded with my uh, microphone in my computer or in my webcam as well. And once I line all that stuff up, you know, so that... You know, I can hear, I hear myself talking with no echo, then I take the lower quality audio out. And uh, what that does is it gives me a pretty consistent uh, audio quality. But if it's just for clients, it doesn't matter so much. If it's, if it's something that you're producing, you want kind of that production quality on, that's when it really makes a difference. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, quality is important, and especially with screencasts, it's actually audio quality is a lot better than video quality. Uh, with the exception is if you're recording text, make sure you can actually read the text. Don't use like 10 point fonts on a big screen because your viewers can't watch it. But the most important thing is the content, like what you're actually talking about and, you know, the messages you're getting across. So like, you know, even if you record a video on like your iPhone or whatever, you know, the quality might not be the greatest, but if the content's great, it's still going to be a good thing to do. Yeah. One other thing I want to point out with the font is just even if it's big enough for you to read easily on your screen, uh, just keep in mind that you're probably going to send it up to YouTube or something, and they're going to down-convert it to a couple of different sizes. And so the text has to be large enough for them to down-convert it in half at least and still be able to read. Yeah, when I do the presentation ones, I actually resize my monitor to, uh, what is it, 1280, whatever that one is. And so I put it to that, and then because I use a browser-based presentation tool, I increase the font size or whatever so that it basically fills the screen. Um, the nice thing about that is it gets it just into HD without it being really big, but I also don't have the problem of having small fonts. Yeah, the tw- the 1280 by 720 is technically 720p, and then it's 920 by 1080, I think, is 1080p. 
Yeah, like just like what? Yeah, the very the very low end uh, HD, because I mean it's a it's a web presentation. Doesn't need you know amazing graphics, 3D stuff. Yeah, I just I just crank up the font size on my uh, different apps and do it that way. The next thing next to uh, like readable text that will make me stop watching something is if the person sounds miserable when they're doing it. Like they sound <laughs> like they're bored. Like I can't tell you how many um, things I've stopped you know, 30 seconds in because the person is just talking like this and then you do the other thing and and they just sound like they're having a miserable time. And if you're having a bad time, I'm going to have a bad time. Yeah. What one example of, or counter example of this is, uh, David Seitman Garland. I've been watching a lot of his videos lately and man, he, he sounds like he's full of energy and upbeat and it makes a huge difference. Any other tips that you guys have? I, I, I have quite a few things that I can say, but I, I want to, I don't want to change the topic if there are other things that you want to talk about that make the videos more enjoyable or easier to watch. Sound in general for me is a really big deal. I'm hard of hearing, so anything that makes that more difficult uh, is annoying to me. So if there's a lot of noise going on in the background, if you have music playing, uh, if I can hear every single keystroke you make louder than I can hear you speaking, that's a huge problem. That's true. I mean, we can see you typing, right? So, Right. <laughs> Well, that's another thing is if you're doing a lot of very programmer type topics, there's a couple apps I'll actually show you modifier keys. So if you're hitting control or alt or all that, those are like almost a requirement if you're talking about like, you know, this is how I work in Emacs or stuff like that. Because, you know, like you get muscle memory and you start typing so fast, people might not understand what you're doing. Um, and those things, they just kind of do like a little on-screen display of you're typing these keys. Uh, those I found are really nice. Yeah, they're they're actually uh, uh, setting in uh, the accessibility settings on the Mac that will show the modifier keys, and uh, that that's pretty handy. The another one that's really handy is being able to highlight certain areas of the screen, and ScreenFlow has that built in, so you can use it, or you can use something like um, Omni. What is it? OmniGraph? No, not OmniGraphle. The Omni Group has one that that does that. I'll I'll look it up here real quick. And I mean, kind of touching on what Ash talked about, another thing is take your time, talk slow, have some pauses. Uh, I know I get really excited and start talking really fast like this when I'm talking about stuff. And then my 10-minute presentation ends up a three-minute presentation. And it's really hard to understand when that happens, um, especially if it's like an education or training. So give yourself time. I've actually had to go back and reduce the speed, the playback speed on a couple of videos because I went way too fast. Yeah, it's OmniDazzle is what I was talking about. With the, it has a couple of different effects you can use. The other thing kind of related to that is I find that for some people, it's difficult for them to explain what they're doing while they're doing it. Uh, so a lot of the time, what I do is I write down the kinds of things that I want to do and what I want to say. And then I go in and I record me doing those actions. And then afterwards, I go in and I overdub my explaining what those things are. So I'm, I'm focusing completely on the action that I'm doing versus having to multitask. Yeah, I can't do that. Uh, my problem with that is that uh, I feel like the timing gets weird when I try and go back and redub the video. Yeah, I've also done it before where I, you know, I'm happily humming along as I'm doing it, not thinking straight, and then I get a bug. And I think like, oops, oh, let me just fix that. And then another bug pops up and like, all right, crap, I got to I gotta stop this thing and do it over. Uh, say one thing, if you're doing more presentation stuff, I found it's really useful if you have notes, like some people have notes on a second monitor or whatever. I actually put my notes on my iPad so I can scroll and it doesn't make typing or scrolling or any clicking noises. You're just touching it. And you also don't have to worry about like recording it on accident or anything like that. I found that was actually kind of useful. I just stumbled across it one day. Yeah, one other thing that I've seen with a lot of the Teach Me to Code videos was I leave the bug in, and then I just record me fixing, oh, I had a typo, or oh, this didn't work like I thought. And I, I probably got as many comments about those as anything else, saying, thanks for leaving that in, because you know, I ran into the same problem, or you know, it helped me work around this other issue that was related to it, or something like that. I mean, that's a lot of the basis of Peep Code's play-by-play is, you know, it basically sit down with a programmer or developer. I think they have a couple of designers in there and here's a problem, work through it and talk about what you're thinking and they'll run into bugs or like rethink their design. And you can actually see what they're going through in their head to try to figure out like, okay, I got this exception. Why I shouldn't have. And to me, that's more valuable than seeing like how you go from A to Z and building something. 
Yep. I actually think that peep code is a great example of everything that you want to do. They're super great about going through things in a very simple way, explaining it pretty slowly. So if you're doing it alongside them, you can get it done. Um, and having transitions where they explain things uh, if you didn't necessarily have the prerequisite knowledge. Uh, so I think that if you're going to emulate anybody, I think peep code is really great. And I'll have it in the show notes. There's a, a blog that they posted about how they teach developers and kind of how they do that style. Yep. Let's talk a little bit more about video production. What do you guys use to put together your intro, intro outro, that kind of stuff? I can't remember. Uh, there's a presentation software. There's thousands of them now. It's just JavaScript, HTML5 stuff. I have that. And I scanned it to match my company branding. So white, green, blue. And I basically, even if it's like an actual screencast of like my editor and all that, I'll make a, a short one or two slide deck to kind of put at the beginning. So I have a title and then, you know, Hey, what I'm going to cover. And then I get into the actual, you know, on my desktop working on stuff. And I basically do that. And like I said, like if it's like going to be an intro, I'm going to use multiple times. I'll record it and save it separately. But if it's just something that I'm going to use for one video, I'll actually just have it in a tab, record it, and then jump right into the actual screencast. Yeah, that makes sense. I tend to use Keynote, but I, I do like some of the other ones. Like I think it's uh, Present JS or something. Th- there are a whole bunch of them out there, like you said, that are HTML5 and JavaScript that work pretty well. What, so you guys basically set up slides or set up effects and do that and you record that in your screen casting program and then you have that as a, a separate video that you can just splice in? Yeah. So yeah. if it's if it's more of a presentation then then yes. Sometimes I have to, you know, switch between that and the shell, you know, or my editor and this is what we're doing now. And and that works out it seems to work okay. I record it on my secondary monitor, so you don't get the big thing of me switching programs. Yeah, so it's like, here's an example, and then I'll switch back, and it, it works out pretty nicely. One other thing that I use in my intros is um, I've, with some of the products that I've put together, I've actually had a logo done, and then I go to Video Hive, and I will get an effect of it coming in, and then I will, uh, you know, so then it comes in, it looks all nice and professional, and then it goes into the video, and it's just kind of a nice little touch with branding and most of their effects cost anywhere from 10 to $20, so it's not it's not terribly expensive to do that. And I'm actually giving away one of my picks there because I was going to pick Video Hive. But yeah, it's it's awesome. And I have since I have After Effects and Apple Motion, I'm not really hamstrung there. One thing you do want to be aware of, though, is that some of them require plugins that are paid for After Effects or for um, Motion. And so if that's the case... I usually just check the box that says doesn't require any plugins, and then I'm good to go. And I bet with those, if you wanted to, you might be able to find one you like, go to like Fiverr or some other outsourcing type thing, and find someone that has all those plugins, all those apps, and have them take your logo and that thing you bought and put it all together and just you know render you a movie or an AVI file that you can just plug into whatever other, you know, your real screencasting software. Yeah, it works pretty well. Yeah, and I just exported it to an MOV file, and then I stick it into ScreenFlow. Any other uh, recommendations on on that kind of stuff, presentation software or effects? I keep mine minimal. I mean, I do. I, th- I think ScreenFlow has like an AB dissolve or whatever, just where you go from one one thing to another. But I only use that at the beginning and end. I just flip my windows on my uh, on my laptop because of the window manager I use on Linux. It's like instantaneous. It's not as flashy as on Mac. Yeah, there was a recommendation I got the other day that uh, somebody mentioned that. They were using for lower thirds. So basically what it is is it's another video, and you can stick it in ScreenFlow on top of your current video, and it's all transparent except for where the lower third is. And the lower third is like if you watch the news or something, and they bring in, they have their logo, and then they have like a bar across the bottom with the name of the reporter or whatever. You oh, can- so you can have like a fake news ticker down there then? Well, it's not the news ticker. It's actually just, you know, so it has, for, for him... Uh, it was Cliff Ravenscraft from podcastanswerman.com that mentioned it to me. But So it says Cliff Ravenscraft, and underneath it'll say, like, podcasting expert or whatever. And so it just kind of gives him that other visual cue, visual introduction, you know, if he's got his face on the camera. I'll have to look at that, too. I I just don't remember what it is off the top of my head. But, yeah, it's it's pretty handy stuff. I've also heard that you can do it with, like, transparent PNGs. And so you just bring it in and you tell it, 
to keep the PNG around for so long, and then you just put the text on top of it. You can do that as well. Yeah, and I mean, for me, like I said, is I, I like to keep stuff simple. Like, I'd rather, you know, create more videos, like, you know, short videos than to have a lot of production in mind. I mean, but I also don't release videos as products that much, and I don't, I think my longest video might be, like, maybe 20 minutes or so, you know, so it's very short to the point. Yeah, the, the, the longest set of screencasts I ever did or videos I ever did, I did, I think, about five or six of them for people who use my dissertation software because it was just way, way more effective than giving them enormous amounts of textual documentation. And at first I thought, oh, I'll just do one video. And then I realized, no, 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 better to have, I think in the end I did five or six. I really need to redo them. But about five or six, three to five minute videos. And I think those were way more effective at being focused. And they were also easier to produce and to uh, put up. Yeah. There's definitely, I, I like keeping it simple, but I also, for some of these, like the training and stuff where people are paying money for them, I really do want them to feel professional. So I'll spend a little more time, put a little bit more of the effect and stuff into it. But yeah, it, it takes a lot of time and effort to get it the way you want it. Now, has anyone done where you're actually on camera before? Whether it's, you know, instead of like showing your desktop like screencast or like in addition to like a dual screen? I sort of did that. I, I had a few clients where I was giving lectures there, and they asked that I record the lecture. And so I recorded and I recorded me as well. And I think it came out okay, but I don't think they ever actually watched it or used it again, so I didn't get any feedback. <laughs> yeah. ScreenFlow will also record your webcam if you've got one attached to your machine. And I did some of the Teach Me to Code videos with it in, but it was just more effort moving it around, so it wasn't in the way of whatever I was showing off. and it also was just, you know, it, was, it wasn't just more work, but it also, I think, just put too much on the screen. There was too much going on. That being said, I have been tempted to start vlogging, which is like blogging, except it's video, and doing something on, like, Vine or YouTube, just because I want that personal connection with people, with potential clients, and with the listeners to the shows and stuff like that. And so I could get on and just say, hey, this is what I've been doing lately. And it could be something that's not necessarily related to the business, but just to kind of help build that personal connection with the listeners or, like I said, potential clients. So you guys use uh, videos for anything else other than demo stuff? Not, not really. really. No. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm planning on trying to uh, do some of that, but it's, um, you know, I'm, once I get to it, um, I'm probably going to go back and listen to this episode so that I can <laughs> pick up all the tips and finally try them out. And you know, because I think I've downloaded, I'm sure I've downloaded, I think Camtasia or I don't know what, but you know, in the past, like oh, let me do the trial, and I I download it and then get busy, and then 30 days pass and I never have touched the thing. So um, I'm kind of waiting until I actually need it to to really get an idea, but it's good to have, you know, people's opinions on how they're using it and what they're doing with it. So are you looking to put together videos for potential clients to see and then decide you're awesome expert? Or are you talking more along the lines of still just recording stuff for your current clients? Well, it might be uh, products to sell. So commercial screencasts, but it also could be, you know, I've had some interest in companies having me do training and if i do training in person that's good but i'd like to be able to leave things behind like here's some other stuff that we didn't cover in person or things like that where i'm not engaged to develop the software but i'm there to help you know build their team and expand their abilities or something like that yeah that makes sense i have to say that the screencasts that teach me to code have really paid off in the way of getting work and people find some of the old videos and they still they'll still come to me i watched your video about whatever and i, I want to hire you to do that same thing for me right <laughs> so they so they didn't really learn necessarily from what you were doing but they learned that you're an expert and so it's worth hiring you yes well most of the time when that happens it's somebody that's not a programmer so for example um one of the videos is a six-part series that i didn't even make honestly it was my friend eric that made it and it was uh how to build a twitter clone in rails and it's built on like rails 2.2 or something so he walks through how to build a Twitter clone in, in Rails. And so people will come to it, and then they see my banner at the top of the site that says, hey, you need an expert? Call me. And, you know, they're non-technical people, but they were searching because they want something that works like Twitter does. 
So they want somebody who can build them that website. And so then they're like, oh, well, I saw the video where you did it, so obviously you can do it for me. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So non-technical people. The other the other way that I've been considering with this, and it was actually kind of funny because this happened to me this morning when I was recording iFreaks. We were talking, and I was like, I, I told them, you know, I want to get to know more iOS developers who may need mobile backend work done. And and I've got a client right now that I'm actually doing that for. And uh, they were like, well, you know, here's here's kind of where you can do it. And, I, you know, we, we talked about how to find people and stuff. And then I was like, okay, so then how do I convince them to remember me? And that's what they said. They said, we'll record videos of you building the mobile backend. I was like, oh. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. And so then I can put those videos out, and then when I make contact with these people, then I can say, you know, hey, I just wanted to, you know, make the connection. Here's why. Here's a video of me doing this kind of thing and, you know, kind of going that way. The one thing I did do is um, I bought a good mic. Uh, so I have a blue microphone Yeti, um, which is uh, served me very well. I haven't really done... Um, a whole lot of, uh, aside from like mostly, I guess this podcast and then any others that I've been on is, is where it's been useful. I tend to not really use it for, you know, client meetings or anything like that where I'm talking to other people. I'll just use like my, you know, phone, my headphone plug in ones from, from my phone. Um, but when I, when I go to record things like this, I will set up the microphone to make sure that I've got good audio. Yeah. It makes a big difference. I, I was approached by lynda.com and by another company here in Utah that wanted me to put together some courses for them. And then, of course, lynda.com, they just kind of flaked out. Maybe I shouldn't say that on the show. Um, but the other the other company here, they both came to me and basically said, we, we need you to get this microphone. And, uh, yeah, it, it makes a huge difference that it's in their list. Um, of course, I emailed them and said, well, I have this microphone. Are you sure you want me to use a cheaper one? And the, you know, it, it, <laughs> they, 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 uh, they backed off that requirement real quick, but you know, it was because they knew that the, the quality, the quality was important and they knew that I could deliver the quality. So I've been using, uh, I mean, I'm using right now also just a Logitech, uh, headset is, is a real microphone going to give me much better audio than that? It depends. Um, so just as the microphone quality varies, so does the speaker quality. And so if you're listening on lower quality speakers, you're not going to hear the difference. Um, if you're listening on your iPhone or your iPad with earbuds in, you probably will hear the difference. And so that that's really where it makes the difference is if you have higher quality or higher fidelity closer to your ear speakers, um, you're going to hear the difference. And then the other thing that I, wa- I can talk about briefly is uh, audio encoding. If it's passable quality... Um, a lot of podcasts and other folks um, will encode it to like 64K. And if you don't know what all this means, when you start editing your um, audio, you'll figure it out. Um, because you, you, you can select that in your uh, export settings. And uh, 64K is like barely passable. For music, it's not good enough. For, but, but for spoken, you can understand it. I recommend that you go at least 96 or 128K. And uh, that really increases the quality of your audio and makes it easier for people to hear and understand. So, What's the disadvantage of always using higher quality? Just file size and yes. download time? Yeah, it's the file size. That's what, that's what you're, you're compromising on, yeah. But with, I mean, how, how much does it really expand the file? Well, I guess, oh, screencast, right? It's not just audio. So you've got to deal with video and write. That, that's going to then expand it quite a bit. Yeah, but I've actually, I've done videos where I put it all the way up to like 320K, and then I've gone all the way down to 96K, and it makes a big difference in the file size. And so if, if it's professional quality, go at least 128. And then obviously you can export it for different systems. You can export it for um, Apple systems like the iPod or iOS or for, for the Mac. And uh, with that, you probably want to go with the AAC audio. And then for Windows, it, it has other settings. I actually have a plugin for ScreenFlow that uh, does the WMV exports. And that's because I had a client that, or no, it was it was uh, Pluralsight that wanted WMVs instead of MOVs or MP4s. And why would they prefer one format over another? Because most of their, they're a .NET shop and most of their stuff is run on Windows. 
And so they have all the conversion tools for WMV. Okay, this is sort of like what Eric was saying earlier, that not all computers can understand all formats. Right, it boils down to what codecs are installed. Mm-hmm. And uh, anyway, so that's a good way of working around it. And if you get a program like Handbrake, which is built on FFmpeg, which is what Eric was talking about before, then you can convert between the different versions as long as the codec is installed for it to play it back. So, so there is a little bit of uh, monkeying around that you have to do sometimes. But it works pretty well. There are also third-party services that you can upload the file in any of the formats, and then it'll actually convert it to all the other formats. And so if, if you're doing videos pretty frequently and you want to release you know, a Windows uh, movie format and an MOV and an MP4, then you can upload it to them. You tell them what kinds you want, and then they, they'll convert it and host it for you. And that's a whole lot easier than building your own system to do it. Well, there, there's a, a, an interesting question, which is hosting it. Where do you put your screencasts? Do you just upload them to YouTube or have them on your server or put them elsewhere? So that depends. I put them on YouTube mainly because I want people to find them. And so, you, you know, you make sure just like any other blog post or anything, you have good uh, information around it. So good title, good description, all that stuff. And then um, if I want it to be private, I'm paying for the premium Vimeo. And so I'll put it in there and then I'll just list it as private. And then on top of that, if it's for teachmetocode.com, so I'm going to start releasing those videos again, um, then what I do is I actually upload it to Libsyn just like I do with the podcasts, and I'm just paying for a higher um, storage capacity on that. Uh, otherwise, I put it up usually on Amazon S3 and then just let people know where they can get it. And so that's mostly security by obscurity. I just don't give people the link unless they paid for it. But if it's a paid thing, the other thing that you can do is you can go with like, um, oh, I forget what they're called, but there are a couple of uh, digital product hosting services out there that, you know, manage all that kind of security for you. And so they'll send an email out and say, you know, here, go download it here now that you've paid, blah, blah, blah. I prefer Vimeo um, for a lot of what I do. Um, I also recommend it to clients just because I really like the player. I like the way that it fits nicely into a lot of websites. But the only thing to keep in mind with Vimeo is they have really strict rules uh, in their terms of service about commercial stuff. So depending on what you're doing, make sure you check out their uh, TOS before you upload stuff. Yeah, you mean they, what, like you're not, you're not allowed to do commercial things on their free service? I believe that's the case, yeah. What counts as commercial? If you are advertising for a product that you're selling. Yeah, and then ev- even on the pro... There's like a pro and then there's like an enterprise or commercial or whatever. And on the pro, you're not supposed to, like if people are paying for that video or paying for access to the video, you're not supposed to host those either as private. You're supposed to actually be paying for the the next higher tier, which isn't terribly expensive either, but I, I don't remember what all the costs are. But the Vimeo player is nice too because you can actually customize which fields show up and which don't. And so you don't have that kind of control all the time with YouTube, but with Vimeo, like you can turn everything off except for the bar at the bottom that tells them how far into the video they are. Yeah, and I think Vimeo just looks nicer anyway. It does. But if you if you want to be discoverable, then putting it in YouTube is a good idea too. And yep. There's a service out there. If you want to put it in a lot of places, you want to blast it out to everywhere, um, it's called OneLoad.com, another one of my picks. But... Uh, they used to be tubemogul.com if you're familiar with them. Um, but what you do is you upload it and then you uh, give it credentials to like Vimeo, blip.tv, uh, which is another free video hosting service. Uh, YouTube, Facebook, you name it, they probably got it in there. And then you just upload it once, you give it all the description information, and then it will actually, um, it'll actually upload it to all those other places using your credentials. So I really yeah, like it. them. There's another thing you can do uh, if you get a piece of software called Lead Player, which it's a paid commercial software. It's I think it's a plugin for WordPress, but it might work standalone. Um, but I'm using that on my sites, and you actually upload your video to YouTube and make it unlisted, so it's kind of semi-private. But then you use the Lead Player software to play it, and so you can actually make it public. Like people can watch it, but it's all through that's the Lead Player software. And the nice thing is. is um, it gets rid of a lot of the YouTube branding. Um, you can do things like at the end, you can have a call to action, like ask someone to sign up for your newsletter or tell them to go check out, you know, some of your other videos, that sort of thing. Um, so you get a lot more control over your video and kind of what your, what your viewer is going to see instead of, you know, here's other 
top 10 videos on YouTube, which is kind of not a good experience. But uh, the owner of it, he's talked about how he's had some people make kind of like, you know, a paid product where it's a bunch of videos using the software and actually having YouTube do the hosting and the, uh, you know, the codec conversion, all that stuff. Yeah, I think you can get just the player. And uh, yeah, I've heard a lot of good things about it. My only beef with lead player is that if you go to leadplayer.com, it starts out playing a video. Yeah, it's an auto load one. Yeah, and you you get those options in your thing. Like most of mine don't auto play. Um, and but yeah, like the actual the site itself, it's like don't you know if you're going there, make sure you have stuff muted or whatever. Be ready to pause right away. Yeah, auto play is evil. Yeah, but it's you know it's one of those things that this you know the metrics say that it's a lot better for sales stuff. So you know. Yeah, but yeah. Anyway, so that yeah, I I, I really like lead player i haven't used it myself but it just it just looks like it does everything that i would want it to do to kind of take things up a notch as far as selling products and things like that yeah and the nice thing i haven't done it but you can have you know your unlisted youtube thing and each time someone plays your the through lead player it increments your views and all that and then if you ever go to like i'm going to take this all these videos from this product and re-release it just you know public make it searchable all that used to get to keep those, you know, thousands, hundreds of thousands of views. And so you actually jump right up in the rankings. Mm-hmm. But there's also a couple other HTML5 players and, um, you know, commercial players, some open source too, that will do similar things. Yeah, and that's that's another nice thing about YouTube and Vimeo is that both of their players degrade to HTML5 on mobile devices. So you don't have to worry about flash issues. I was wondering if anybody had added subtitles to any of their videos. I mean, aside from like the automated thing that you can do with YouTube. Uh, no, I haven't. No, I've thought about um, having someone do a, a good quality transcription of it and putting it in like the description or somewhere. But no, I haven't done actual subtitles in the video. Yeah, and depending on what the video is, subtitles, I, I guess they would work for anything that's not already displayed as text on the screen, so... I, th- I think you might be surprised by how many people can actually benefit from subtitles, especially if they're not native English speakers. That's true. I get that a lot about the transcripts on these shows. I mean, in, in Israel, virtually, well, I mean, everything that comes from abroad has subtitles in Hebrew, and so I sort of got used to it. And then we sort of flipped where we would, even watching things in English, we would turn on the subtitles. And now I've gotten used to it, and you'd be surprised by how much more you can get by being able to read it when you when you miss something that someone has said. Yeah, it looks like you can actually add closed captioning to your uh, screen flow, through screen flow. Yeah. I'm sure it's a ton more work, though. So, but. Yeah. It makes it a lot more accessible, though. And I think that's a big thing for a lot of people. I, I mean, I, I'm just hard of hearing. I'm not um, completely deaf, but there are a lot of people that could benefit from that kind of thing. So I was just wondering. Yeah, it makes sense. And, you know, if you can put it on there, I don't know if YouTube or any of these other players actually support closed captioning. I wouldn't be shocked if they did. YouTube does. Um, YouTube also has like an automated service that's really bad. It's like laughably bad. <laughs> it's probably using Google Translate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I was curious, guys, uh, if you, when you're going to do a screencast, if you... Uh, plan the script in advance and if you write it out. I think Eric said something about keeping it on his iPad, but how carefully planned are they before you go and you do them? I think it depends on your intention. If it's like for a client or like I'm explaining what I did, I might just plan out like a bullet point outline of cover these things. If it's like a presentation or something more in depth or detailed, I'll write out a script. I You could tell when I'm reading from a script because I'm not that good at it yet, but they're not as good as me just talking live. But it just it depends on what you're doing. If you're doing a high quality product, you probably want a script. You probably really want to rehearse it so it feels natural or have it where it's a, a script but not very detailed. Yeah, and I tend to do the bullet points. I don't. I never write it all the way out. Um, if I'm recording like a sales video where I'm actually looking at the screen, a lot of times it's easier for me to read it, so I'll do that. But if I'm doing a screencast where I'm coding or something, it's all bullet points, and it's either either in org mode or it's in uh, Markdown. Yeah, and just the presentation software I use, you actually write your slides on Markdown. So that's what I was saying on my iPad. I'm actually reading the Markdown source for the slides. And so I'll put like, you know, HTML comments, which don't show in the presentation software, but I can read it. And so that's kind of how I know what I'm looking at. And, you know, I think it just depends. You know, if, if you're not sure, 
make a script, practice it, and then record a copy of that, see how it is, and then try to do one without the script. Uh, some people are better at winging it. Some people have to have everything written out. Yeah, if I'm using Keynote for my uh, video, then I'll also put it in the speaker notes. And I do that when I'm speaking anyway. And again, it's usually bullet points, and it just you know prompts me to work my way through it. So it's, that's kind of the approach I take. I remember hearing a, an interview with Gary Bernhardt from uh, Destroy All Software, uh, where he said that he, if I remember correctly, he didn't actually script it. He just went through it again and again and again and again until he felt like it was smooth and good and at the reasonable pace. But he said that basically meant he spent three or four hours redoing the same 10 minutes repeatedly, mm-hmm. and that it probably wouldn't work for most people. And I remember thinking when hearing that, that's right. I don't think it would work for most people. Uh, but the, the, the end result is amazing. Yeah, the other thing to remember while if you're recording screencasts is that you can always cut something out and, uh, you know, you just put a fade or whatever transition in and most people, it won't be a discontinuity in your recording. So it's not a big deal. And also if you're doing short ones, like I've done some that are two minutes long, I've started the recording, went through it the entire time and like stuttered really bad at the end or just missed a point. And actually just went back to the first slide, paused for 15 seconds and did it again, all in the same take. And then I just cut out, you know, the, the one out of the four or five that was actually good. So that's, that's a nice benefit if you're doing shorter screencasts. You can just do multiple takes, figure out which one's the best and use that instead of having to start and save everything. Yeah. And if you stop for, you know, 10 or 15 seconds, um, at least in ScreenFlow, I think Camtasia did it too. It shows you the waveform of the sound. And so you can see the flat line there and you can say, okay, this is where I screwed up and this is where I need to start from. And it's pretty easy to just cut that right, cut it nicely so that it just flows right into it. Yeah. What I'll do is I'll like hit my desk really hard. So you have this, it's silent and it has this huge spike. And so that's how I can visually see it too. How hard do you I also hit? I also hit my desk because I'm pissed because I screwed up. But <laughs> All right. Well, let's go ahead and do the picks then. Reuven, why don't you start us off? Well, as you guys know, I'm sort of knee-deep or hip-deep in doing my dissertation and trying to write it up. So I guess my best pick for this week is going to be Bookends, which is software for keeping track of a bibliography, which will be useful to maybe a very small percentage of our listeners, perhaps a happier small percentage than I am. But hey, it's actually very nice software. It works on, it only works on the Mac. Uh, it has bad, <laughs> it works poorly with Microsoft Word. But it works really well with a bunch of other word processors. So anyways, that's my pick for this week. Awesome. Ash, what are your picks? So since I travel so much, I invariably end up with a ton of email. And there are a lot of things that go on in my email that I can't easily keep track of without things being in my inbox. But I'm also one of those people that can't handle a ton of stuff being in my inbox once I've done something with them. So I use this app called Boomerang, which works with... Gmail and allows you to schedule emails going out also allows you to schedule things to be moved back into your inbox. For instance, if I email someone and say, can you let me know in the next week about this or, you know, tell me before such and such a date, I can have it, uh, move it back to my inbox, uh, if they haven't responded or move it back. If I say, I'll get back to you in a week about this. So I know that I can handle it then. So that's boomerang. And then the other thing uh, that I do in between traveling, especially at airports, is uh, I bring a Logitech controller around with me with my laptop, and I play ROMs a lot. And I use uh, open source software called OpenEMU that has a ton of different emulators for NES and SNES and Game Boy and Sega Genesis and all different kinds of things. And coupling that with the fact that archive.org just put a ton of ROMs up it's like the perfect storm of playing old video games. Nice. Eric, what are your picks? Hold on, I have to download all the ROMs. Um, <laughs> I got three. The first one I mentioned, Lead Player. Um, I use it. It's paid software. I don't remember how much it is, but it's it's great. I've transferred all of my videos to be played through that, especially if you're trying to use videos for marketing, like to get people onto a news newsletter or you know, getting people to sign up for a product. It's a great thing. Second one is a blog post, a little bit, uh, actually, when this comes out probably a week ago, uh, from Seth Godin, it's clients versus customers. That's very short, but it's nice because, um, there is a difference if you call your, call the people who hire you to, if they're customers or clients. And that's basically a big difference between product and service businesses. And then the third thing, um, bit of self-promotion here. I've 
kind of publicly announced that I'm writing a book. Uh, it's called The Freelancer's Guide to Long-Term Contracts. As of right now, I just got the final edits back from the editor. So I'm actually putting those in there and I'm actually probably going to have it up for sale within the next few weeks, maybe a month or so. So in the show notes, we'll have a link. Uh, it'll be basically if you want to hear about it when it comes out. I'm also writing a bunch of really large blog posts kind of about freelancing and about uh, contracts. So it's relevant. If Even if you don't get the book or not, you can still get on the mailing list and get that information. Uh, it'll probably be on my blog too. So that's it. Awesome. Uh, Jim, what are your picks? Um, I am looking forward to Eric's book. It actually sounds awesome. Um, uh, I don't really have many, but I started a project recently and we're using Flowdoc. I don't know if anybody else had used it before. I heard of it, but uh, this was the first time I've actually used it. Um, and it's basically, um, if you're familiar with Campfire, it's kind of like that. So, you know, group chat room and um, you can have one-on-one chats with people and you can make different rooms and hook, you know, notifications in from, for example, we have Jenkins notifying us when something goes wrong on one of the builds. Um, so it's just a general place to gather and talk. And so I, it, they have a browser version and they also have an app that you can download on your computer, which I use. And I think there's also mobile. Um, so you can, you can get all the information you need, which is great. You know, when like particularly in the summer, I'm bouncing around doing things like bringing my kids from one place to another, you know, on a rare occasion. And, um, it's nice to be able to notify, be notified when something happens or just, you know, if I'm at a stopping point quickly text back, say, Hey, I'm, I'm out. I'm going to work on it in the next 15 minutes or, or whatever it is. So check it out. Nice. All right. I've got a couple of picks. We already talked about most of them. Um, one That's where you can upload to multiple places at the same time. AudioJungle.net, they have a lot of audio effects and uh, music. And so I paired one of the audio effects with the video that kind of fades in my logo, and I think it turned out really well. Then VideoHive.net, where you can get those effects. And then finally, I've mentioned this before, but uh, Create Awesome Online Courses. That's his other product, uh, David Seitman Garland's. But that's a great place to use a lot of this stuff to create products and build a course. So those are my picks. And uh, anyway, we'll uh, we'll wrap up the show. We are doing an interview with Getting Things Done, uh, David. Uh, what? Alan. Alan. Thank you. <laughs> and uh, that'll be in a couple of weeks. So make sure you read the book and uh, be ready to listen to us talk to him then. And clean your inbox, folks. We'll wrap this up. We'll catch y'all next week. <laughs>